All right. How's everybody doing tonight? I wanted to say, hey, something like, hey, party, party peoples, but it's not, um, it's, it's not natural to me. Can I try that again? Hey, party peoples. Yeah. It's so not my personality, but thanks for letting me try. I uh, hope everybody had a good day today. I'm excited to get to talk about, actually I shouldn't say I'm excited to get to talk about what I want to talk about tonight because we're getting into some pretty deep, dark stuff tonight and I'm going to feel pretty uncomfortable and I think you will too. Um, what I want to talk about tonight is I want to think about for a little bit together. So we asked a question this morning, how is it that Jesus meets those of us who are anxious and depressed? How does he meet if that's us or if that's not us, our friends? And tonight we're asking the question, how does Jesus meet those of us who are sexually broken. And what I mean by that is those of us who have done things sexually that we're ashamed of, and those of us who have had things done to us sexually that we're ashamed of. And again, just like this morning, I'm assuming that's a lot of us. If that's not you, I know that you have people in your life that that is. And what I want to do tonight is simply kind of look at a passage together from John 4, thinking about how Jesus meets this woman who that is her story. Now, I want to sort of say at the outset, I've got two kind of, um, two things I want to say, two, you know, um, just things I want you to know. One is an assumption, and the assumption is simply this. I'm working from what I would just call a, a biblical sexual ethic that I believe God has given us in Scripture that says good sex, whole sex, sex that makes us whole, sex that is pleasing to God, is meant to be within this covenant relationship that God calls marriage, that marriage is the place that, from what God says in the, in the Word, that marriage is the place that can hold and sustain this beautiful vision of sexuality that the Bible gives us. Uh, and so sex is this beautiful, weighty, covenant-renewing thing that God intends or God sort of designs to, to be within this covenant relationship He calls marriage. I'm assuming that. I know some of you here, you have questions about that. I'm glad, so glad you're here. If you want to talk more about that, I would love... To, to do that even tonight um, as we do s'mores. <laughs> Make some real awkward talk around the campfire. It'd be great. The second thing, the second sort of thing I want to say is a, um, just a word of warning is I want to take a little bit of creative license with the text tonight. We're going to meet a woman who I think if we understand the text, we have some questions that we could ask her just about her own relationship with sexual brokenness. Why is it that she has had five failed marriages? Why is it that she's living inappropriately with a sixth man? Why is it that the text seems to suggest that uh, when she meets Jesus, she thinks he wants something sexual from her, so she's a little bit guarded? And why is it that the women, the, all the other women in town, she's at the well in, in the middle of the day, we're going to look at it, she's at this well at the middle of the day because all the other women in town avoid her. Why? I think it's because she's got her own broken story with sex. And that she sees herself in her own sexual relationship in a very broken way. So let's look at that together. I'm going to look at John 4, starting at verse 7. And let's look at it together tonight. So John 4, I'm going to start at verse 7. I'm going to read from the ESV. If you have a Bible or a fan, you can turn there. So a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Literally, it says, will never be thirsty again forever. It's beautiful in the Greek. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. said, I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus, not being afraid to confront her in love, said, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, I think getting uncomfortable by the conversation, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. It's one of my favorite lines. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of town and we're coming to him. Let me pray for us, and I want to jump in to what I want to talk about tonight. Let's pray first. Jesus, we pray that you would meet us tonight in the very same way you met this woman years and years ago. Lord, that you would um, meet us in those places of our sexual shame. Meet us in those places of our sexual addiction. Meet us in those places where we are scared to talk about where we are, that we can talk about our past, but we're so ashamed and afraid to talk about our present. Jesus, would you meet us in the same gentle, loving, confrontational, truth-giving, life-giving ways that you met this woman so many years ago? Lord, we ask that you would do this. We ask that you would do it, that we might be encouraged. We ask that you would do it, that we might be convicted. We ask that you would do it that you might get the praise and the honor and the glory, and that you you would be to us living water, and that we might never be thirsty again forever because we know and and are known by you. We pray these things for Christ in your name. Amen. So I want to start by talking about my honeymoon tonight. And because when you think about honeymoons, it's supposed to be this incredible, you know, if you live in a Christian world, the honeymoon is this like penultimate place where you're going to experience Sex for the first time, it's going to be amazing. Like the way that Christians sell like honeymoons, it really feels like a unicorn of sorts where you're just going to like, you know, it's just going to be amazing. I don't know if you're a unicorn person or not, but like my dream would be to ride a unicorn, maybe eating a donut or two and just flying through the galaxies and it would be amazing. And I thought my honeymoon was going to be something like that. And there were two reasons that it wasn't. Here's the first. The first was in my desire to make myself attractive to my wife. I went to the tanning bed the day of my rehearsal dinner for the first time ever in my life. And not only 
not only did I get the tanning bed for the first time ever, but I did that thing where I decided my body hair was disgusting, so I shaved all of it. Not only did I do that, I also, when the guy said who was running the tanning bed, do you want to go for the full 15 minutes, I said yes, thinking 15 minutes in the sun is nothing, so yes, let's do this. Not only did I do that, I also wore the goggles, and not only did I wear the goggles, but I really went for it, if you know what I'm saying. So here I am. I go back to take a nap before my rehearsal. I wake up, and I'm not kidding you, I look like a raccoon and a lobster had a baby. <laughs> like, I am, like, red with white goggles. I, this is not a joke. I show up to my rehearsal. My wife, who's coming from Columbia, this is, we're getting married in Sumter. My wife, who hasn't seen me all day, she looks at me, and I'm not kidding, she bursts into tears <laughs> because she knows she knows that the wedding pictures are ruined. Like, literally, if you were to come to my house, all of our wedding pictures are in black and white, and they're in black and white, not because we were, like, cool, but because we had to go with the black and white option because there like, are, are a couple of colored pictures, and I am, like, like so red. It's unbelievable. The second and slightly more uncomfortable thing that I'm going to be a little bit vulnerable is so we get to Jamaica, we get to where we're going, and we are in that moment. We have this suite in Jamaica, and I think to myself, okay, I'm going to make this really special. And they had given us this bottle of champagne to celebrate our wedding. And I, in my mind, thought somehow this is going to be part of the deal tonight. And so as my wife and I are beginning to have some fun, some married fun, I take a glass of champagne and I simply pour it on top of her. <laughs> this is true. This is true. To which, to which she says... What the are you doing? <laughs> and this is how my marriage begins. <laughs> right, so why do I, why am I thinking about this? Here's, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I have since that moment and in, the, in those moments learned. I didn't realize, and this is, this is true, this is serious. I didn't realize, and, and even after those moments, I didn't realize how much Porn and lust had shaped my view of sex and love. I didn't. Both in the ways I wanted to be seen and in the things that I wanted to connect and the ways that I wanted to connect, there was a real sense in which lust had totally shaped the way that I saw love. And I think in this passage, we meet a woman who that's her story. Lust has absolutely shaped the way that she understands and sees not only herself, her, her, her worth of love, but also the way that love should happen. And what I want to do tonight is simply ask three questions, thinking about, and I'm just going to use the word lust, and it's not because it's my favorite word, it's not. I just don't have another word to kind of capture everything I want to talk about when it comes to sexual brokenness. So that's the word I'm using kind of by default. But I want to ask three questions from this passage about lust. And the questions I want to ask are simply this. First, what draws us to lust? Second, what keeps us in lust? And then lastly, what will break the spell of lust? So first, what what draws us to lust? Why is it that we sort of trade lust for love? Second, what keeps us in lust? Why is it that for a lot of us, we get involved in certain ways with sexual brokenness and we can't seem to escape it? We, we sort of want it and don't want it, but our wanting it is this, this cycle that we can't break. And then lastly, what begins to break that cycle? What begins to break the, the spell or the power of lust? So first thing with me for a little bit about what draws us to lust and I think when we look at this passage, what's fascinating is I think we could sort of take away two things. And this is where I'm getting a little bit of creative license, but I think, I think it's faithful to what John is trying to show us and Jesus is doing with this woman. And here's the first one. The two reasons 
that we're sort of drawn to lust, that we sort of trade lust for love, here's the first, is that we have this deep-seated fear of intimacy. That idea of intimacy is that, that we long, I long for someone to fully know us and deeply love us. We long to be known and loved. And the question we could ask this woman is, did her five husbands know her? Did they love her? Did the sixth man she's living with know her? Does he love her? And the question that, that's the question that we can ask ourselves is, is as we've, whatever our addiction or whatever our experience with lust has been, there's a sense in which we do it because it seems easier, it seems more accessible, it seems just less risky than love. Because what lust offers us is being loved without really being known. And there's a real sense in which that's, a, that's an attractive deal. And this is part of why when I, when I think about my marriage story, you know, I thought for the longest time that getting married would heal my lust. That I really did think like that getting married, that the reason I was struggling is because I wasn't married. And that as soon as I did get married, all of my struggles with porn, all of my struggles with masturbation, all of my struggles with just my own story of sexual brokenness would simply go away. And I can stand here and say to you, that is not at all what happened. Why? Because when you have a lust problem, you have an intimacy problem. And an intimacy problem is much harder and it takes way more work to fix because what you're saying is I want to be loved, but I don't, I'm a terrified of being known. And marriage is this beautiful but hard invitation to being both. Can I share myself? And can I trust that it's, you're going to fail me, but you're also going to try to follow Jesus into meeting me in love? And there's a real sense in which we're drawn to lust because we are terrified of intimacy. But there's a second reason. And the second reason is simply this, is we also have this desperate need for security. We, we long to be somebody. And for a lot of us, lust makes us feel like somebody. It makes us feel known. It makes us feel accepted. It makes us feel liked. It makes us feel, dare I say, loved. And there's a sense in which, because the question that I have of this passage is, why does this woman keep going back to the well of lust? Like, why has she kept going back to these men over and over and over? Why is she still in this, what seems like a very clear pattern, a very clear cycle that has not worked? We could ask her, how is this working out for you? And she could say, it has not worked out very well. And Jesus meets her in that very place. But one of the reasons I think if we were to ask her, if we were to do an interview with her in stage tonight, one of the things she would say is, but when I was with these men, I felt like I was somebody. When I was giving myself in those ways, I felt like I was somebody. That's why we talked about David Foster Wallace this morning. He has this great line where he says, we are dying to give ourselves away. And part of why we are dying to give ourselves away is we want to feel the safety that we can feel maybe in the arms of someone who is not us. And there's a sense in which our fear of intimacy and our need, our need for security drives these things in us. This is why I don't know if you saw, like, if you're an Oscar movie, like, if you, I'm, like, my wife and I do this thing when we talk about hobbies. You know, I hate that question because my hobbies feel so sad to me. But one of our hobbies is that we love to see, like, any movie that's nominated for an Oscar, we make sure we see in this nerdy, kind of committed way. And so I don't know if you saw the movie Her a few years ago. I think it was two years ago. The movie Her is one of the best dealings with this, these ideas of intimacy and security. The, the idea between the trade of what we could call false intimacy for real love. In the movie, Joaquin Phoenix plays this guy. He's living in the future, and he has a ruined marriage. His wife has left him because he would not show up to let himself be known and to love her. And so what he does is he ends up falling in love with his operating system, Samantha. <clears throat> She's played by um, Scarlett Johansson. And as they kind of fall in love and, and as he gets really, you know, into her, 
there's this moment where he goes to this cabin and she goes with him through his headset. And there's this moment where they sing this song together, Moon Song. And whenever I see that song and hear that song, I love it because I think it gets exactly what we're saying. At the end of that song, the refrain is, we're safe and we're a million miles away. And there's a sense in which that is what lust offers us. The illusion of safety without the risk or the hardness of relationship and of actual real love. So if that's what draws us there, and even though, like, if, I'm assuming, like, if you're here tonight and you've got a deep porn addiction, it's not that you don't know this. Or if you're here tonight and you're deeply struggling in your relationship with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, it's not like you don't know some of this. Or if you're doing the thing where you're sort of randomly hooking up and looking for that, looking for that magic, looking for that moment, it's not like you don't know some of this. So the next question we have to ask is what keeps us in lust? What is it that keeps us there even when we, if we have begun to see that it maybe it's destructive, if we've begun to see that it's not working out in the ways we thought, what keeps us there? And that's the second question I want to ask. The question we could ask her is, why does she keep going back to these men? We could ask ourselves, why do we keep going back to porn? Why do we stay in relationships where we know we are crossing physical boundaries, and yet we're too afraid to break up or get married? Why do we do that thing where we, where we give ourselves to people that don't know us at all. And we know all they're there to do is use us. And we know as soon as we give ourselves in that moment, they're not going to call. They've gotten what they wanted, and yet there's a part of us that can't seem to break this cycle. And this is where I, I want to say again, uh, there are a couple of things that I think keep us in lust that I think we can infer from this passage. And here's the first one. For a lot of us, what has drawn us and keeps us in lust is our own experience with sexual abuse. When we look at this woman, I think it is very fair to say, throughout these relationships, these five marriages and the six men, that there's probably two things that are happening, one of which is she has been sexually sinned against. She has been sexually used by some of these men, if not all of them. That things have been done to her. And there's a sense, and I know, because I know my own story, I know that I'm in a room where sexual abuse is part of a lot of your stories. It's certainly a huge part of mine. When I was in middle school, um, and it took me years, I remember driving home from staff training, and I was driving with a, a campus minister who doesn't work with RF anymore, and he was asking me the question, we were talking about this book by Dan Allender called The Wounded, uh, the Wounded Heart. And I'd read the book, I had to read it for seminary, but I had not kind of connected some of the things. It's funny if, if abuse is part of your story, it's funny how in denial you can be for a long, long time. And that's a huge, that's part of my story. And I remember for the first time in my life risking, as I, we were talking and having this conversation, my friend gave me the gift of going first. And he shared about his own experience with sexual abuse. And as he was sharing, because his story was so similar to what I had experienced, as a middle schooler, but never told anybody, like never told my parents. The first person I ever told was my wife. It happened to be in a Wendy's drive-thru, which was a weird place to do it, because then I, I immediately got the comfort of a spicy chicken combo, which actually explains that I'm, this is a little self-realization moment. This is why I am so love uh, Wendy's spicy chicken number sixes, because they were there for me in this dark time. But there's a real sense in which, as I as I began to put the pieces together of my own story, and my story, I, I won't go into all the details, but it was a, a child, you know, it was a, a friend. 
It was who just, who took advantage. And I remember going to school, this happened over a Labor Day weekend, I remember going to school the next day, and I had this question, am I gay? Who, do people know? I felt like friends would talk about the weekend, and I felt like people, everyone knew what had happened. And yet, I, I could not, I couldn't bring myself to share my story. It took years and years, and really, honestly, y'all, it's really in the last two or three years, I've made the connection between that part, because that was, what happens in abuse is you are robbed of the gift of your sexuality. And what that begins to do is it begins to do the anti-Song of Solomon refrain, which is do not awaken or arouse love until it so desires. Someone awakens and arouses love in you, and you don't know what to do with it. And it, and it begins to, bring, talk about shame, it begins to develop this relationship with shame for you because you don't know how to process it. Someone has robbed you of this gift, and it's this really crippling thing. But it's this crippling thing that I know that we need to begin to talk about because I know I'm not alone. And every time I begin to share part of my story, I know that there's someone who's going to say, me too. And can we give the gift of one another, safe people, people who get the gospel, who love you, not just anyone, the gift of me too? Because the reality is for some of us, we are kept in lust because abuse is part of our story and we have not begun to process it with anyone in helpful ways. But the second thing, the second reason that I think that we are kept in lust is for a lot of us, we have this dependence on what we could simply call a sexual addiction. Uh, so this is where my counselor has been profoundly helpful. I meant to say this this morning. Like finding, a, I, I realize that finding a good counselor is a hard thing. I, I, like if you have questions, you you want that, you feel like you need that in your life. Please talk to your campus minister. But I think like finding a good counselor is like finding a good pair of jeans. Like they fit you comfortably and they don't make you hate yourself more. It's kind of the way I think it should go. And there's a real sense in which a lot of us, you know, it's a gift to us. And I remember once, you know, my counselor processing parts of my story. He gave me this idea that was really helpful. And when we were talking about is, how do you know that your relationship with lust has become an addiction? You know, we, we talk a lot about addiction. Addiction is something that's very real for a lot of us in other areas. But how do you know it applies to you in lust? And I'll never forget him saying part of the way you know it is you can stop, but you can't stay stopped. But there's a real sense when you begin to think about and process your own story with sexual brokenness, if you, be, if you believe that it's in the realm of addiction, there's a real sense in which you've got to look at both the breaks and the pedal. That was the, he was like, that's the image that he used. He said, in, in our story, sometimes what we'll do when trying to overcome lust or trying to fight lust is we'll hit the brakes. We'll do good and right things like tell someone, talk to somebody. That's a good and beautiful thing. We'll, we'll seek accountability. We'll seek, we'll, we'll put, we'll install covenant eyes on our computers and our phones. We'll lock our phones in ways that are helpful. We'll, we'll, we'll break up. We'll do the things that we need to do. We'll tell our friends, don't let that guy call me. Don't let that girl call me. If they do, can I call you? We'll block numbers. We'll, we'll hit the brakes. But hitting the brakes only lasts because what happens, what if, what happens if your foot is still on the pedal? What happens is as soon as you pump, as soon as you release from the brakes, because your foot is still on the pedal, you're still driving, lust is still driving so much of what you're doing, so much of the way you're living. And dealing with why your foot is pressed on the pedal is a way harder thing to deal with. Because you're dealing with deeper heart questions. Why am I so drawn to lust? Where did this begin for me? And those are questions that are hard and painful to ask. And yet they're the ones that we have to ask. And that's the last thing I want you to see this, this uh, tonight. Is So if that's what draws us and keeps us in lust, well, how do we begin to do that? How do we begin to, to take our foot off the pedal? How do we begin 
to not enter into destructive relationship with sex. And the last thing I want to ask is how the spell of lust is broken. And this is where I really love what Jesus does in this passage. Is here's Jesus, and, and she's a little surprised. I mentioned at the beginning, I think she thinks, like every other man, here's Jesus, and he engages her. Jews didn't engage Samaritans. Priests especially didn't, you know, rabbis did not engage women. What does he want from me? And the disciples come back, and they're a little shocked. What is Jesus doing? Like, is Jesus trying to do something here? There's a sense in which the way that Jesus meets her is beautiful to me because he doesn't give her a book. He doesn't, like, give her a copy of every woman's battle. He doesn't give her this, like, six steps to fight lust. He doesn't give her a lecture. What he does is even more beautiful. He gives her himself. He gives her the deepest thing that she needs, which is a man who is a God who knows every sort of detail, who knows everything for which she feels ashamed, and yet loves her, and yet wants her, and yet is going to die to make her his own. You know, it's interesting, the, the, the whole fact that this scene is set at a well, we could make so much about it, but I think Jesus is saying to her, he's going straight back to Jeremiah too. And he's saying, listen, you've been drinking from bro- the broken cisterns of lust. And now you've met me, and I am the one you've been thirsting for. I am the fountain of living water who not only knows you, deeply, fully knows you, but truly and deeply loves you. And this is why I love, you see what she says. You see the thing, the moment for her. She runs back into town and you see what she says in the passage. She says, come meet a man who told me all that I ever did. What is she saying? She's saying, come meet a man who knows every broken thing that I've done and has been done against me and yet wants me and yet loves me and yet longs to call me his friend and longs to make me part of his bride. Uh, I'll close with this. So I was, one of the moments for me that has become kind of an image of my own story is when I was a sophomore in high school, I'd begun a relationship, uh, um, I'd begun this, what I would simply call an addiction with, with basically with pornography. And back in those days, it was in magazine form. My dad, I'll talk more about this tomorrow, my dad left home. One of the things he left behind was a stack of, of um, adult magazines, and I found those in his absence. And really, honestly, those became for me a safe place and a refuge. I remember that had already started for me, and I'd done the cycle thing where I, I'd become a Christian, and I was trying to get rid. I, like, gave away all these magazines, and, and, you know, I was trying to fight lust. I was trying to fight what, you know, what was an addiction for me. And I remember going to this old abandoned high school with my friends, and we were playing. We were wannabe skaters at the time, which meant we played hacky sack for some reason, which is a weird thing. We are playing hacky sack at this abandoned high school, and there's a dumpster there. And as we're doing, as we're, I don't know, playing, doing hacky sack, this guy from youth group drives up who's older. He's got a truck, and he's dumping some garbage. And he says to us, don't come over here. Don't come see what I'm doing, which, of course, we're like, yeah, we're going to come see what you're doing. And what he's doing is he himself was dumping some dirty magazines. And all of my youth, we're all, you know, this little group of Christians were like, oh, man, we're so proud of you for doing that. That's awesome. Like, go you. And he's like, yeah, like, I'm getting rid of these things. And we're like, this is great. All my friends, we leave. We go home. 
And then after everyone gets home, I get back in my little truck and I drive back to the dumpster and I climb into the dumpster to fish out the magazines. And for me, when I think about my own story with sexual brokenness, that's the image for me. Is I so disqualify myself from being loved because I'm afraid of it and slash don't think I deserve it that I'm willing to look for it in a dumpster. And yet, if I were to ask myself, Sammy, how did you see yourself in that moment? That's what I would say. You're looking for love in a dumpster because you don't think you're worthy to be loved. And if I ask myself the question, how did Jesus see me in that moment? He saw someone whose lust could not overcome or triumph against his love. He saw someone who he loved even in that dumpster. He saw someone who he has loved out of lust and continues to love out of lust. And my question for you is, has Jesus begun to love you out of your lust? Because I can promise you what you're looking for in your lust, you can only truly and ever find in Jesus. And that's why, you know, I mentioned I love film. If I could end, like if I could make a movie, I'll, I'll never make a movie of this passage. But if I could, I would do it in a, in a very Terrence Malik way. And I know what my closing shot would be. My closing shot would be simply this, this water jar. That as she and Jesus leave and she goes back and says, come meet a man who knows everything I've done and loves me. Here is this water jar that she's, this broken, water jar that she's left behind. Why? Because she's found what she is looking for and she's been found by the one she's been looking for in Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus, uh, we have talked about deep and weighty things. Um, thank you that you are with us. Lord, thank you that, that you are not afraid to talk about these things with us. We th- I thank you that the Bible is awkward and is not afraid to make us feel awkward. But Lord, I pray that it would not be for nothing. Lord, I pray that this again would just be the beginning of a conversation of healing, a beginning of a conversation of wrestling with you, both in our anger and our sadness and our longing to be known and loved, that Lord, that this would be the beginning of something that you would begin to do in us in faithful, compassionate, and deep ways. Lord, I pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen.